This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Hey, welcome to Under the Yellow Tape, brought to you today in part by Forensic Training Source. Have you ever wondered about those that do the investigative work to ensure that crime scenes are analyzed, evidence is collected, truth is discovered, and justice is served? Or where the law enforcement professionals that protect and serve all of us find the specialized training required to do their important jobs? Forensic Training Source is the company that provides exactly that kind of training. They exist to serve those that protect and serve all of us. Forensic Training Source deploys internationally recognized experts across the United States to provide top-notch instruction in a variety of forensic disciplines. Let's face it, training budgets for the public servants that keep us safe are tight, especially when travel is required to attend quality training. Forensic Training Source has created a model for course delivery that brings training to the practitioners by mobilizing each course in order to reduce the cost for a community to obtain specialized training for their forensic professionals. Forensic Training Source has become well-known, specifically for 40-hour courses in the fields of crime scene photography, bloodstain pattern analysis, shooting incident reconstruction, and associated advanced courses. They use real scenarios, real blood, real weapons, real ammunition, and most importantly, real experts to create an interactive, dynamic learning experience for its participants. From Alaska to Florida and Maine to Southern California, the staff and instructors of Forensic Training Source have delivered training for thousands of forensic practitioners from all 50 states and numerous countries worldwide. Like myself and everyone here at Under the Yellow Tape, Forensic Training Source has a deep appreciation for those that objectively seek, find, and share truth. And for that reason, I am honored that they chose to sponsor Under the Yellow Tape podcast. For more information, check out Forensic Training Source on their Facebook page or visit them at www.forensictrainingsource.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm Howie Ryan. Today, what I think we're going to try to do is break down another case that happened up in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And it was the uh, it was in the aftermath of something we talked about in an earlier episode the the shooting of Jacob Blake. It is another shooting that occurred in the aftermath of the uh, the protesting and rioting that goes on. And I'm going to talk about those two terms. And I think it's about time we we define them because a lot of 
the media in this country seems to throw those words around haphazardly. They, they like to use the term protest sometimes when people are being shot and things are being burned. And I think it's important that we clear this up. But I want to go into a little bit of a background of this story and why it is significant. Again, similar to some of the other ones we've talked about. It occurred back in August. And um, again, it was right after the shooting of Jacob Blake, which was August 23rd. In the days that followed, there was civil unrest. People uh, were upset uh, about the shooting of Mr. Blake. And we went through that pretty, pretty clearly earlier in a previous episode. But the city had to react now because the unrest grew and the areas within the city were getting destroyed and burned and robbed and looted. And um, law enforcement was forced to get involved. So on, on, on that initial day, August 23rd, after the shooting, and around 11 at night, police began using tear gas and uh, other, other munitions, less than lethal, to attempt to disperse these crowds, which had, which had gathered throughout this area of the city. Around midnight, um, they started to light fires. They lit a small fire in the uh, ground floor window of the county courthouse. And they also lit some garbage trucks and some other things on fire, other vehicles. By 2.30 a.m., this thing had started to escalate, and uh, a truck and a used car dealership was lit on fire. Now, that fire spread, and it burned most of the other 100 cars in the lot, damaged quite a uh, bit of the area, and businesses in that uh, western portion of the town started to get torched and looted as well. Uh, There was the Civic Center Park, the post office, a high school a county administrating building. They all sustained damage to windows. So they're breaking windows, they're lighting things on fire, and they're burning. And they're doing it seemingly in the name of being unhappy about the incident that occurred with Jacob Blake. The interesting thing is they don't know anything at that point. They really know nothing about the story of the shooting of Jacob Blake because nothing had been put out. Even in the media, which usually gets it wrong, hadn't even really put that much out yet. But we had some videos, you know, cell phone videos put up. Media ran with that. And in the, once again, they incited everybody with half stories or false stories. And um, they, they got everybody spun up. Now, as is the case a lot of times with some of these civil unrest issues, some of the people that are there, we've, we've come to learn that they're not there for the incident. And they're not necessarily even from there. When I say there, whatever city it may be that particular week that happens to be on fire. Um, they come in. They're almost professional agitators. They're really, some of them are actually almost professional rioters. And the, the, the local police departments are usually forced to try to deal with this. And these things can spin out of control very quickly. There was also another incident that, you know, like an incident that continued with this during that night is um, police often have a, uh, a lot of police departments have these vehicles are called Bearcats and they are an armored truck. Mostly their SWAT or tactical teams use them. That was damaged, and um, there is a very well-known video now that's been out showing one of the police officers getting struck in the head with a brick and being knocked out cold. So that isn't protesting. That is just not protesting. That's rioting. And when I say day two, which is the next day, August 24th, you know, a lot of their demonstrations during the daytime 
seem to be more peaceful. And it's only when the sun goes down and the, and the darkness descends upon these cities that, uh, you know, it, it starts to get really out of control and starts to get violent. And that's, that's an important part of this. <clears throat> if you look at some of the definitions, and I want to talk for a, for a minute just about your right to peacefully protest. You know, you have the constitutional right to peaceful assembly, and you can protest about something you're not happy about. That is protected in your constitutional rights. And every police officer in this country would stand and fight for that right for you. The problem lies in the media's interpretation or use of the words sometimes. They feed the masses a story. And whatever that agenda may be is whatever the flavor of that particular news agency may be, usually. So when you use the term that, you know, the police are using heavy-handed tactics with protesters, I just, I think before we go any further with this case, because you have to kind of define certain things before you explain the actions of others. So you have protesters that come out, and the protest is, you know, they may just not like something, and they have every right to come out and voice their opinions. Most cities, however, have some sort of rules on this. Look, if you're going to protest, a lot of cities require you to get a permit. You've never heard the media talk about permits at all because, you know, they laugh, they scoff. It's ridiculous. Well, it's not going to get a permit. I mean, where are you going to make a stand? If you're not going to allow us to stand where we want to stand, then we're just going to do it without it. Okay, well, that, that's breaking the law. And it may be an ordinance that you're breaking, but you're still, you're still doing something that is not permitted necessarily. But everybody in every city, they have some sort of rules about protesting. You know, they want to know that we can have adequate police protection there for the protesters, right? And for anybody else and for the businesses and the infrastructure and private property and things like that. But in, in most of the cases that we've seen lately in these cities, these are not peacefully organized, not even close. And, and if they begin that way, which I don't think they are, they ramp up into something completely out of hand. So it, it starts to get into unlawful assembly. And the definition is, you know, when three or more people meet with the intention of carrying out an unlawful act to deliberately disturb the peace. So that's an unlawful assembly. So you have the right to lawful assembly. You do not have the right to an unlawful assembly. Now that protest is simply that, protesting. People may hold signs, they may chant, they may scream, they may be interviewed by media. These things have been happening forever. But we get into what we're looking at on all the videos and the news clips and on YouTube and everywhere else. These are not protests. Because let's face it, the way we've desensitized society to these goings-on in these cities, a peaceful protest isn't entertaining on the news. Nobody wants to watch. Nobody cares. Half the people that are there doing it don't even know why they're there. What it, what it devolves into is a riot. A riot. Okay? Riot. Cornell Law School, they define it. A concerted action, one, made in the furtherance of an express common purpose. Sounds, sounds good, right? Through the use or threat of violence, disorder, or terror to the public, resulting in a disturbance of the peace. Under common law, the crime of riot requires the assemblage of three or more actors. Now, they may be unlawful in themselves, or they may be lawful acts that are done in a violent or turbulent manner. So there are probably some people out there that, that have the intention of going to one of these events, 
<clears throat> and protesting, but it's kind of like this wolf pack mob mentality. It just starts to spin like a vortex, like a like a like a little like a little tornado. And in the next and they and they're always seem to be organized by somebody. And sooner or later, one of these days, there's going to be an investigation into who's funding all of this and how it's all getting ramped up. But the thing that I think all of us, no matter what side of political fence you are on, one of the things we have to understand is we're having an incredible amount of damage and cost to the public being done in each one of these. And we're having loss of human life. And that's, that's unacceptable because a lot of the damage that's being done is private property and businesses owned by people that have nothing to do with the supposed reason that you're even there. And they're watching their businesses that they put their life into and their savings into burn to the ground. And for what? <clears throat> Some 20-something-year-old kid who thinks he knows what's going on and he's going to come out there and make a statement, maybe. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But I know that they're destroying a tremendous amount of property. They even tried at one point on that second night to break a door off its hinges in a public safety building before they were turned back by, by less than lethal munitions and tear gas and things like that. On day three, August 25th, I'm kind of going through this part quick because we'll get to the incident that we want to talk about. Day three, they, Governor Evers was involved and he requested deployment of additional National Guardsmen. And they, they started sending them in from all over, several hundred at least, and he wanted more. But then you have your sheriffs making comments. He's saying <clears throat> people, civilians, started arming themselves, defending properties, or, or saying they were going to defend property. Because in the last two days, all hell had broke loose, and Kenosha was getting destroyed. So some of these people that own these properties said, enough's enough. The law enforcement either is being ordered to stand down, which I'm going to talk about a little bit, or they're physically unable to handle this. And if they're unable to handle it, what are we really left to do? I want to take one second and repeat that because it's worth repeating. And I want everybody that listens to this to think about all these other cities, Portland, Minneapolis, Seattle, all the places that's going on, this is going on, and say the same thing there. If the law enforcement is being hamstrung, handcuffed, whatever you want, put on a leash by a mayor and told stand down or stand back, then what is the public left to do? It's a powerful question and the answer is ugly. I'm going to tell you right now, it's ugly because the police department should never, ever be told to stand down against unlawful violence. That is their sole or one of their sole purposes to protect and serve. And when a local politician is giving an order that I don't even know whether, whether it's lawful for them to do that, to stand down and watch your city burn. Well, folks, that's exactly when people are going to arm themselves. And when that happens, nothing good comes from this. And that leads us into what we're talking about on this third night of August 25th. People started to arm themselves and start to talk about protecting property. And if these, and if these rioters were going to come to them, they were going to stand their ground and they were going to try to deal with it. Now, you're, all, you're talking about a lot when this happens, untrained, unorganized, individual actions with real weapons, with real ammunition, and resulting in real death if, if it comes to that. So a significant number of these armed civilians start, started to gather, right? It was all over the news. We saw it on some of the videos, on some of the personal cell phone video uh, footage. 
The police were saying they weren't invited and uh, they weren't helpful. Okay. Were the rioters invited? I'm just going to throw that out. I mean, if you're a law enforcement leader and you are going to pretend to be a leader or you're actually going to be one, you don't look and say, well, they weren't invited. You got a major problem on your hand. I know they're not invited. Everybody knows they're not invited. And I have these people, I don't know that they even want to be there, but they got to protect what they have and you're not doing it. You might be failing. And that's no reflection on the individual police officers who want to do their job. This is what happens when politics gets involved. And you make the job of that frontline police officer extremely difficult because this situation only got worse. And it just like it happened in all these other cities, which are reeling from millions or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage, you failed. Do you hear me? You failed your citizenry. When you seceded land in Seattle to the CHOP or CHAZ zone, you are an epic, utter failure. You were responsible for those deaths that happened within that area. And that can never, ever be forgotten. We, can, we cannot let this happen. There's a reason for law and order. The uh, sheriff there started calling them, well, they're, they're, they look like a militia, like a vigilante group. Well, y- you might be a little early on that, right? Maybe the, I don't know. Maybe they will act like that. Maybe they are that. But you don't know at that point. You don't even know what you're doing at this point. It's pretty, pretty, um, <laughs> pretty telling. Because you know, some of their own officers were thanking them. They say, hey, guys, thanks. I mean, it's on video. You can look it right up. It's all on open source. You know, they're saying, hey, thanks. They're even throwing water. They threw water to Kyle Rittenhouse, which is the young man we're going to talk about tonight, and said, hey, thanks. We appreciate you guys. Sheriff said, well, that's, uh, well they shouldn't have said that. No, maybe they shouldn't have. But maybe it shouldn't have gotten to that point, Sheriff. So you need to think about your failures as well. Um, that evening, there was a shooting. And that's what we want to talk about in this. I want to break that shooting down because there's, there's actually two. Kyle Rittenhouse is a 17-year-old young man from Illinois. We can get into why he's up there. And I'm going to talk a little bit about his reason for being there or, or the reported reason for him being there and the firearm that he possessed. But he was involved in two incidents, both uh, involving gunfire. And in those incidents, he shot, uh, I think it was three or four people, causing some, causing some fatalities. You know, he killed some people that night. But let's break it down because the news wants you to believe that a 17-year-old kid armed himself with an AR-15 and he went around shooting and killing people. And, you know, if that's all you hear, you're like, wow, that's, oh my God, what's going on? This is, we're losing our minds. And then you look at the videos. And if you look at the videos like you're investigating a shooting, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit, you might have a little difference of opinion. But, but, but the bottom underlying theme here is I want you to constantly go back in your head and say, Oh my God, this is what happens when things get totally out of control. When you let it get out of control. There's an ugly side of policing, folks. You heard me say it. And sometimes the police have to go in there heavy. And they got to they gotta straighten things out. And people are going to get hurt. And people are going to get slapped around. And they're going to get put on the ground. And if they fire at the police, they're going to get fired upon. That is, that is how this is going to happen. This is how we maintain law and order. Peaceful protests are welcomed. It's part of our constitution. Rioting will never be. It can never be tolerated. But, but we're having this, we're having almost this brain fart in this society, in this, in this time frame of this, this part of this year. The election cycle isn't helping. People are losing their mind and they're, and they're awfully divided. But we're letting things happen that we normally would never let happen. And we're watching them grow and morph into a festering nightmare. 
And we, every, and every time it happens, it happens, the same thing happens again. And we're not learning from it. We're not putting our foot down. We want people to protest if they're unhappy. We, we, we encourage that. But you can't start lighting, on, lighting buildings on fire. So Kyle Rittenhouse came up from uh, Illinois. He was, wasn't very far. Kenosha's near the border of Illinois, not far from Chicago. Now, if you listen to his attorney, his attorney says that uh, somebody had asked him to help protect a property. That's what they're saying. I don't know that to be true. That's really the only story we have. There's been a big issue of him carrying the gun up there across state lines. He wanted federal charges. One of the things they think they have already determined is that the gun did not cross state lines, that the gun was from Wisconsin and somebody gave it to him up there to help protect a particular property, some of these used car dealers or used car lots. Now, let's talk for just a second about a 17-year-old young man that is leaving his state to go to another state to a riot, and he's going to be armed. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say his mom and dad, whoever they are, if they're both still alive, I don't know, uh, weren't patting him on the back, say, saying, you know, great son, get up there, strap up, and, you know, stand a, stand a, stand a post. Most normal parents um, would not condone that. I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying that. I don't think that's the normal thing, not a normal parental decision. I'm going to give them credit and say, I'm sure they didn't know that was his intention. I'm not even sure they knew where he was. I'm not sure anybody in his family or friends knew where he was. But anyways, he's up there. So you've heard me say in previous episodes, when you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. I'm not sure Kyle Rittenhouse was making smart decisions that night. Okay, you're 17 years old. You have next to, what is that number? Yeah, zero life experience at that point as a 17-year-old. Now, there's some young people that may listen to this and say, that's, no, that's bullshit. I know a lot. Okay. I'm just going to throw this out to you. When you're like 40s and 50s and older, you realize how clueless you were at 17. At 17, you don't think you're clueless. You think you know everything. Ask any parent of a, of a teen. But the truth is, when you're older, you're like, God, what was I thinking? Well, this was a life-changing event for Kyle Rittenhouse and a life-ending event for some other people. So I don't want to beat that part up too much, but he's up there and he is armed and he armed himself, whether they gave it to him or whatnot, he is armed. And as a 17 year old running around a city street during a riot with a, with a rifle, nothing really good is going to come from this. So I want to throw that out there first. I'm not, I'm not patting Kyle Rittenhouse on the back for, for making a dumb decision of even being there. However, I do want to talk about his actions once it started to unfold. And in shooting investigations, that's the things we have to look at. Obviously, we're going to, you can't just sit around in a courtroom and go, well, he was an idiot for going up there. Okay, that's one thing. But what we really want to break down is, was he justified in shooting anybody? And you have to break down the actual event, the dynamics of the event to answer those questions. So he is at this property and uh in the city and he's with a bunch of other people there's a bunch of other folks out there and one of the fir- the first individual that is shot is a is somebody by the name of Joseph Rosenbaum now there are reports that Joseph Rosenbaum was lighting fires the investigators of this are going to have to answer that question because the accusation is there and this is why it's important it's been said one of the first videos you see 
after this thing starts to unfold, is Kyle Rittenhouse running out of a building with a fire extinguisher in his hand to put a fire out. And they're saying that Rosenbaum was either the one or with the people that were burning something, lighting fires, committing arson. Arson. So whether or not that's the case, the next video we see is a group of people physically chasing Kyle Rittenhouse through the front of, it looks like a gas station or some auto body shop. And he's running and he's carrying the rifle and he's running, running, running. And, and Rosenbaum is right behind him. He's closing the distance. Now, everybody wants to make, a, make this issue of all, all Joseph Rosenbaum did was throw a plastic bag at him. And in the video, you clearly see Rosenbaum throw something that looks like a plastic bag. What the media is leaving out is directly behind Rosenbaum is another individual who the law enforcement in Wisconsin are going to have to identify. And it appears he has something in his hand. And right before Kyle Rittenhouse turns and, and fires his weapon, there is a clear and distinct gunshot coming from right behind him. So he is being pursued. He is being chased. That's important. I'm going to come back to that. He's being chased and he is attempting to get away. Okay. He's attempting to retreat. I'm going to use that word. Where he's going, I don't know. Maybe he's just running away from him. Maybe they're pissed that he tried to put their fire out. I don't really know that yet, but the law enforcement officers up there are going to have to break this down. And I'm going to tell you in a few minutes why their job has been made even more difficult by politicians. So as that gunshot goes off and they run to an area which seems to be between two vehicles, Kyle Rittenhouse turns around and he fires four shots. Well, he fires. There's four shots heard in a, in a very rather quick volley. One, two, three, four. He shoots four times. Rosenbaum goes down. Immediately, you hear three other gunshots. This is the part where you, the public, gets, gets buffaloed because the media doesn't really want to break it all down. Maybe it's too much of a pain in their ass. But it also might not be as good of a story because they're trying to vilify somebody. So we'll leave the certain parts out. So these other three gunshots, my point being, there's a lot of shooting going on in this first event. And it's not just Kyle Rittenhouse, apparently. Somebody fires before he turns around. Now, the question the jury is going to be asked is this. Is it reasonable to believe that he was in fear for his life? He's being chased, so he's obviously in some sort of fear. And it's not until the gunshot occurs right behind him that he turns and engages. Now, that's the first incident. Now, one, that's the first shooting part. Now, immediately following that shooting, he gets on the phone and calls somebody. I don't know who that is. I'm sure they do. And says that he shot somebody. He thinks he might have just killed somebody. He actually goes back. He has a medical kit, which is just another kind of kooky thing. What are you doing up there? You think you're a, you think you're a, you know, a field medic in a combat zone? But he goes back over and he, he seems to, to want to check on him with other people. And these other people turn on him. He is then chased again. And he starts running down the road. And he's trying to tell people, you need to get to the police. You need to get to the police. It's very clear. There's audio and there's video. And it's actually pretty clear. And I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of this audio and video may help Kyle Rittenhouse immensely. So he runs down the street and... So Rosenbaum is shot in the, in, the, in the parking lot. And as he's running down the street, a virtual mob is running behind him. You can hear him screaming, get him, get him, get him. He's the one. He shot somebody. He's running. It's ironic because what we find out later in the video, he's running towards the police. 
He doesn't quite get there, but he's running towards where the police are lined up at an intersection down the road. What his intentions were, I don't know. He's going to have to answer for that. But he is, there's a, a young man that runs up behind him and tries to punch him in the back of the head. And he does. And then a short distance later, Kyle Rittenhouse trips and falls in the street. Now, this is where he gets in uh, approached. And I'm going to just say it. He's flat out assaulted by several other individuals, a Richard McGinnis and an Anthony Huber. One tries to grab the gun while another person tries to stomp on him. No shot is fired yet. Once they go to grab the gun, another individual tries to uh, strike him over the head with a skateboard. I mean, literally almost just tries to tomahawk down on top of him with this skateboard, hits him in the side of the head and the shoulder. And this is when Rittenhouse fires again. So he is, he shot two of these individuals right then and there. And one of them is a reckless endangerment charge, which I'll get into, but the other one is another homicide. He shoots Anthony Huber and kills him. Now, the other individual, a guy by the name of Gage Grosskrutz, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. He comes running up on him with a pistol in his hand and he almost stops and backs up and then he lunges at him again, reaching for the gun. What ends up happening next is Rittenhouse fire, striking him in the right bicep. And you see him reel backwards in obvious pain. Now, this is the part as a shooting investigator that I find very interesting. 17 years old. There's a term and we, we say, and one thing we noticed, and a lot of people notice that do this for a living, look at it. This 17-year-old kid knew how to operate that weapon. It's an AR-15. And there's a saying, he knew how to run that AR. He ran that weapon. He knew what he was doing. He was proficient. But the important thing as, a, as an objective investigator is he never shot anybody that wasn't attacking him or wasn't assaulting him or wasn't, attempt, wasn't attempting to disarm him. They all pursued him for whatever reason, and they all engaged him either physically or with a weapon, the skateboard. Skateboard being the weapon. Now, you may say, well, it's a skateboard. It's not a weapon. He's unarmed. Yeah? I'll tell you what. Anybody that really believes that, you, you stand out in front of him. You sign a release for him. And let me hit you over the head as hard as I can with a skateboard. You tell me whether you think it's a weapon or not. Okay? Because somebody takes a big laminated piece of wood with the wheels on it and just comes down upon your head, it could kill you very easily. So to say it's not a weapon is ignorant. It's, it's what you, you want to hear that. That's you saying, no, I don't want it to be a weapon. So you're saying it. It is a weapon. A lot of things can be used as a weapons that are not originally designed to be weapons. Now, the other thing that he did is immediately upon firing this, there's another one that tries to come up. Well, he points the rifle right at this guy, puts his hands up, and he backs up. Probably the smartest guy on the street that night. I'm not saying there was a ton of brain power running around there, but that guy figured it out. He stepped back. At that point, Rittenhouse gets up and he runs down the street towards the police. The weapon is slung and he puts his hands up and you can see him pointing back to where the shooting took place. Uh, an armored truck goes by him moving down the street. There are some commands being given over a loudspeaker and Rittenhouse walks right up to the passenger window of a police car and, and begins to speak to somebody. So this isn't like some case where somebody was shooting wildly, killing people intentionally and running away. This was, this was very, very clear 
And if you watch the whole video, the unedited videos that are out and are, are available, you will see that he was never, it never seemed to be the aggressor on the attack. And that's going to play an enormous role in his court case. Now, there are a couple different people. I'm going to talk some, some about uh, what the media has to say too, because, you know, they're awesome. And how they probably spun this thing into something that it is never should have been or never needed to be. So we can always blame the people that were there that were involved with this because, you know what, they spun a lot of this stuff into things that didn't need to be. But the truth is also that the media, as it unfolds, does a lot of the same thing. So let's go back for a quick Just, I want to talk about that weapon thing for a minute. So he tries to basically ilkabong him over the head with a, with a skateboard. And people say, well, he was unarmed. Everybody was unarmed. Well, first of all, the guy that got his bicep blown out was not unarmed. Very clear. Rosenbaum, although he may have been unarmed, the guy behind him didn't seem to be unarmed and started shooting. So in, the, in that moment, did Rittenhouse believe the guy behind him was shooting? Maybe. I don't know. That's a question he's going to have to answer for. But a weapon, what is a weapon? Any instrument or device for use in attack or defense, in combat, fighting, or war. Anything used against an opponent, adversary, or a victim. Okay, so that's anything, folks. We have this idea, this predisposed idea in this country. I've been doing this for over 30 years, and I've heard this so many times, it makes me want to throw up, that unless, you're, unless you have a gun in your hand or a knife to somebody's throat, you're unarmed. Like, we'll talk about people being shot in cars, and they say, well, they were unarmed. But they're driving a 2,000-plus-pound instrument into a crowd or trying to run police over. Well, they're unarmed. They're not unarmed. Get your heads out of your collective asses and understand that you can be armed and not have a gun in your hand. There's a lot of instruments of death if they're used properly. So that's something that we got to dispel. And the media really probably should, should help with that, but they don't because it ruins the story. As he leaves the state, I guess he goes home that night or the next day or whatever. So he is charged. I want to go through this. Based on, I'm assuming, some statements of people out there. Now, the statements of people out there, as an investigator, I'm going to take with a grain of salt. You're rioters. So I'm going to be taking the statements of potential rioters. Now, there may have been other people out there that were not rioting, that were walking home or doing whatever, or maybe they were peaceful protesters. I'll give their statements a little more, you know, credit. But when I take a statement of a rioter, that means I'm taking a statement of somebody who's willingly destroying everybody else's property and they don't have uh, good faith in their mind that night anyways. So we have to weigh their statement and the value of it as we move along. So he is charged with several counts of first-degree homicide, first-degree reckless endangerment, and um, first-degree reckless endangerment of an unknown person, possession of a weapon by a person under the age of 18. Several counts of reckless uh, homicide. I said that already. So now these are major league charges. <clears throat> now here's the problem I have. And I've seen this in a lot of different places. Okay. Remember what I said, the 23rd is the original, the original incident. The 25th at night, this shooting occurs that we're talking about. By the 27th, he's in custody and charged with all of these crimes. Here's something I want you to think about. This isn't television, folks. This isn't CSI, law and order, whatever you want to call it. This crap doesn't happen in a 24-hour window. This is not an isolated case where two, two drug dealers went at it and there was 30 witnesses. This is a scenario where you have massive civil unrest and, and chaos. 
And half the people that you're going to rely on for store statements are probably involved in some of the chaos. So the simple fact that you told me you were going to levy these charges on a 17-year-old kid in probably 24 hours I have is problematic. That's problematic. You don't know enough yet. There's no way. There's just no way. These things take turns. And, and the problem I have with it is this. Because you don't know enough and you did it, the question begs to be asked, why did you do it? The answer to that is pandering, folks. We're going to try to quell civil unrest. We don't want any other, quote, vigilantes out there doing this. So we're going to drop the hammer on this kid quickly. Now, some of you might say, that's a good idea. I understand why you're saying that. But what about his rights? What about his right to due process? How much paperwork was done? That's the question that needs to be asked at a trial. How much paperwork did you know the time you levied the charge, the time you wrote up the charges on him? How much credible witness testimony did you get? What did you have to say, oh my God, this is first degree reckless homicide? First degree, I, intentional. First degree is intentional. It's going to come with an intent. He intended to kill these people. Mm, I'm going to say you didn't have a lot, but I'm going to say elected DAs and everybody else up there was starting to kind of get nervous. And the, there was a conversation I could almost guarantee is saying, we got to put an end to this crap for the public starts shooting up the streets and we have a whole pile of dead people on our hands. I do understand that. But is what does he become then? The sacrificial lamb, you know, because, you know, you don't hear a lot about all these other people. You don't even really hear a lot about who they really were. You know, if this was a police officer, we'd be talking about his personnel jacket, his folders, his, uh, his, any disciplinary. But we never seem to really talk about that with people out here doing this. Like who Rosenbaum was? What was his criminal background? Did he do anything? I never really dive into it unless it's a, it's, it's a big deal, but the media should. The media should be looking at that. Who are these people? Stop making them look like martyrs and tell us who they really are and why they're out there. Because let's start. This didn't happen at a, you know, at a concert. This happened at a riot. A riot. Again, we're talking a riot. Now, that is one of the biggest issues I have as an investigator. Like, I would look at them and say, whoa, 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 whoa. What are we doing charging now? We don't even know. Half the people that gave us statements are probably screwed up. So let's slow down. We know who he is. We can get him in pocket in another state. We can hold on to him for safety reasons if we had to. We can get that gun. Now let's gather the video evidence. Let's gather credible video. Let's make sure there's not other video out there. What do you think? Everybody, sh everybody, all the rioters ran to the police station with their phones and said, oh, please take my video. Here's my phone. I'll voluntarily hand it over. Yeah. No, that doesn't happen. My point is, what if three days later a video came out and said, holy crap, that totally contradicts everything we said on the criminal charge. And now we have egg on our face. So slow down. They, 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 they went off to this very quickly. Now, in the state of Wisconsin, just like every other state, there is laws for what we call self-defense, right? And um, the laws are simple, right? Now, there is, a, there is a question on him carrying the gun. Should anybody have given him the gun? Maybe not. He's 17 years old. They're going to fight that one out. And they're gonna, you know, his defense is going to have a hard time on that one. I actually think they're going to have a much easier time on the self-defense. So 2019, uh, Wisconsin Statutes, Chapter 939, Crimes in General, 939.48, Self-Defense and Defense of Others. 
Let me read a little of this to you. You've heard similar things before. A lot of states are very similar. One, a person is privileged to threaten or intentionally use force against another for the purpose of preventing or terminating what the person reasonably believes to be an unlawful interference with his or her person by such other person. The actor may intentionally use only such force or threat thereof as the actor reasonably believes is necessary to prevent or terminate the interference. The actor may not intentionally use force which is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm unless the actor reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or another, right? So you go back now and apply this. This is the rule of law. At the point of the shooting, forget the fact that he's up there watching a, a gunshot. That'll get, that'll get hashed out. That's another thing, which he's allowed to be there, by the way. He's allowed to be up there. Now, the gun issue he's going to have a problem with, maybe. But at the point they're chasing him down and gunshots are going off behind him, you have to ask the question, as a reasonable, objective individual, at that point, they're chasing him. He knows it. He's running. He's fleeing, right? And uh, he thinks he's being shot at. Though now he turns around, does, here's the question, does he have the right to defend himself? That's the question. That's the whole thing. Does he have the right to defend himself? So that's one of the things we're going to have to go over and go through in court, or they're going to have to go over and go through in court. And it, it becomes a, it, you know, it becomes a self-defense issue. Now in the second part of the shooting, as he's going down the street, so the first one he believes they're behind him shooting, somebody's shooting and they're behind him. He hits Rosenbaum, okay? Rosenbaum's chasing him. Does he have, is he reasonable to believe that Rosenbaum is shooting at him? Maybe, maybe not. They're going to have to hash that out in court. But when we get to that second shooting, all right, we have a substantial amount of gunfire going on on that city street. And we have him being struck multiple times by multiple people. And when he trips and falls, he is in a inferior position to them. He's, he's not in a good place, although he does have the weapon. Now, that, that's a question you're going to have to ask. Is he at that point permitted to use that weapon based on his reasonable belief that they are trying to injure me? And the video here, this is not his testimony yet. The video in this particular set of circumstances is very, very telling. Very telling. He, he fires at the people that are attacking him. For them in 24 hours to drop a ton of charges on him, especially against a kid that, that, that tried to break the skateboard over his head, is pretty telling. I and mean, what are we going to do? Are you gonna, we're going to look at this kid and say, you, you should have just taken the beating, let him take your gun? I don't know. So, you know, everybody flipped out when the president of the United States said, well, and he, he had to defend himself. That's his opinion. That's the president's opinion. I get it. And there's other people that, that have opinion. There's a lot of people out there looking at this right now going, oh, this is absolutely self-defense. There's a lot of reasonable people that are watching this going, this is completely and totally self-defense. None of those people, by the way, are probably patting him on the back for being there and strapping up with a rifle. But when that point comes, and this is the legal part, it's not what he did earlier in the day, cleaning graffiti off schools or carrying around his med pack. It's that moment of the shooting. Is it justified? So, and the reasonableness of the person's belief is judged from the position of a person of ordinary intelligence and prudence in the same situation as the defendant not a person identical to the defendant placed in the same situation. It's just, it's just a belief of a reasonable person when they do this. And that is a very 
important issue here. That's a, that's a critical legal aspect of this. Now, as far as, now the matter of the gun in his hand is going to be an issue that he's going to, it's going to be a little sticky for his, his attorneys. So carrying a gun in the state of Wisconsin under the age of 18 is a misdemeanor, a class A misdemeanor. So he was really not old enough to legally carry the, the assault style rifle that he had. They're going to try to go into this hunting loophole. Uh, you know, that's all legal mumbo jumbo. I don't really know that they're going to pull something like that off. So he may get, he may get um, a smack down on that quite a bit. But the, as far as the defense of his, of his own person, there's going to be a legitimate argument here that he, is, he was acting in, in the manner uh, clearly defined as self-defense. You know, the, here's the thing. How much can the state really go after him? And listen to this. They failed to protect everybody. They didn't get it done. So where are they culpable in this? Where are they culpable that the people felt the need to take up arms? Now, if you're saying, well, yeah, but there's no other people should never do that. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But with potentially 50 to $100 million worth of damage to some of these areas, maybe, what do you expect people to do? They have businesses. They're trying to just save themselves here. It's not like these folks were out just randomly shooting people. They were just trying to protect their property. And some of them did and, and did it lawfully. And, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, I don't want to say got into, he may have gotten himself into this, but it's kind of unbelievable that, uh, that they, they, they just charged him up in, in like 24 hours. So let's talk real quick at the end here about some media and some folks. Now, Bloomberg... Uh, Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg, Bloomberg.com. Here's, a, here's an article. Noah Feldman at Blue, Bloomberg.com. You, you know, you don't have to sometimes, if you do just a little bit of statement analysis and you look at how people say things or write things, you know everything you need to know about them. So he is a, he is a reporter or writer for Bloomberg.com, and uh, this is an opinion article. And the title is this, How Guns Twist the Logic of Self-Defense Laws. And then the subtitle is Wisconsin Open Carry Rule Will Help Kenosha Shooter Kyle Rittenhouse Make His Case. That's true. The first part, though, is, is kind of like the self-serving almost. That's his opinion. So he's, and he's, he, begins it, he begins the article by saying, you'd think it would be easy to determine whether Kyle Rittenhouse can successfully plead self-defense after killing two people and injuring a third during protests in Kenosha. Turns out that it's actually pretty complex. And he says, here's why. When gun rights get involved, the law tends to depart radically from common sense. Now that, folks, is just a straight-out opinion. Now, to his credit, it's an opinion article, but that's his opinion. He's obviously not probably a Second Amendment supporter, and he thinks, you know, that common sense is out the window when we're dealing with guns. He says the legal framework is, on its own, is relatively straightforward. Now, in Wisconsin, as in many other states, you can use deadly force in self-defense if you reasonably reasonably believe that it's necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to yourself or others. But he writes this, you can't avail yourself to the self-defense argument if you've provoked other people into attacking you. Hmm. Think about that. That's, that's such a broad statement. Well, I want to ask Mr. Feldman this. What about if the provocation was you trying to stop a fire and the arsonist was unhappy about it, or the other people that didn't like what you were doing decided they were going to chase you down with guns and try to beat you to the ground. See, you're not allowed to do any of those things. You can't do that. Kyle Rittenhouse had retreated. He had tried to get away. The video is irrefutable. He's trying to run away. 
And it was only when he seems to have reached a point where he didn't think he could, or when he fell and was being physically assaulted, is when he discharged the weapons. So when you say you can't avail yourself to the self-defense argument if you're provoking other people into attacking you, what kind of bullshit is that? The people are, these people have started out with the wrong intentions, lighting fires, looting, robbing, breaking things. They don't have a pass. You can't attack anybody. Just like Kyle Rittenhouse couldn't just attack them. We have no evidence that he did that. Not that we've seen him open source anyways. He says, common sense is even further displaced when you start to think about how Rittenhouse would claim to have reasonably considered himself to be in danger of imminent death or bodily harm. I'm, I don't know if this guy's like vision impaired or he doesn't know how to search open source media. He's in the media, so I know he really does. That may be one of the most idiotic statements I've ever heard. How could he reasonably say he was in fear? I don't know. Maybe you should be the guy to take the, take the, the voluntary hit over the head with the skateboard and let's see how it feels. What do you think there, Mr. Feldman? That's a dumb statement. That shows you're biased. That shows you are completely biased in this event, and you have no objectivity. Um, he says, the criminal complaint against Rittenhouse says that Joseph Rosenbaum, his first victim, approached Rittenhouse and then followed him. Followed him. No, they were chasing him down. It's not just a follow. Use the right words. Words matter. I always say that, right? Cell phone video shows Rosenbaum, who doesn't look like he's got a gun, throwing a plastic bag at Rittenhouse and missing. It doesn't look like he has a gun. So basically you're saying you don't even know whether he's got one or not. Now, ordin ordinarily being followed or having a plastic bag thrown at you would not be enough evidence to show that you were in reasonable fear for your life. No. However, the gunshot from the other guy behind him might elevate it to that point. But thank you for conveniently leaving that part out of it. The investigators love you for that, making their job harder. A gun twists logic. He says, Rittenhouse can presumably and will claim that he feared Rosenbaum will take away his gun. See, he's presuming. He said, this is what he's going to do. Really? You know this, Mr. Feldman? Because you have such extensive experience in criminal investigations? I don't think so. He's going to probably say he shot at him because he thought he was being shot at. The gunshot is very clear behind him. And the other gunshots that went off. He says, it seems a little short of absurd that a person who carries a gun in public and then is pursued could use the fact that he and not his victim was armed to claim that he had to shoot in self-defense. That justifies logic right there. No, see, one of the guys caved, tried to cave his head in with the skateboard, and the other guy had a gun. So this is where the media just blows any credibility they used to have out of the water. I've never been a fan of, like, op-eds, because you're a coward. You don't have to sign your name. Or editorials. I'm sorry, editorials, not op-eds. Editorials. I love the editorials and papers. We're going to write an editorial. We're just not going to tell you who wrote it. Wow. Because there, because there be any more cowardly way to represent yourself than just do it in, with, in anonymity? If you're a professional, have the balls to put your name on it. It's as simple as that. And then argue your point. That, that's the way it's supposed to work, right? Some account. <laughs> I love this. The second victim, Anthony Huber, allegedly tried to grab Rittenhouse's gun. He too was unarmed. Some accounts suggest, some accounts suggest that he may have hit Rittenhouse with a skateboard. Of course, by now, Rittenhouse had shot and killed Rosamond. That's a different event, right? And some accounts suggest, no, it's not suggested. It's plain as day in a video. I'm not rooting for Kyle Rittenhouse here necessarily, but let's be fair. He got hit in the head and the, uh, the shoulder with the skateboard. Now, finally, Rittenhouse shot and injured Gage Grosskreutz who approached Rittenhouse while armed with a handgun. 
This is the only one of, this is, uh, this guy from Feldman's belief, this is the only one of the three shootings that could even conceivably be considered as potential self-defense. Obviously, you've never been in, in this area. Now, wait till I get to the end and tell you what his, his actual title and job is. Considered as self-defense because Grosscross was armed. See? Armed. He, this guy, uh, what the hell, I'm going to tell you right now. Feldman is in a Bloomberg opinion columnist and the host of the podcast, Deep Background. Conspiracy shit, right? He's a professor of law at Harvard University. Are you kidding me? And he, used, and he was a clerk to a U.S. Supreme Court Justice, David Souter. So, Harvard Law Professor. And he's saying that, that crashing a skateboard over somebody's head is being unarmed. Hmm. That actually is amazing. And he said, because Grosskreis has the arm, it's the only one he could use as self-defense. No. I can tell you I've been involved in many cases where other things have been used as weapons. And it was clearly self-defense. He said, but if Grosskreutz believed that Rittenhouse was a shooter on a spree because Rittenhouse had just killed two men, then it also defies common sense to think that Rittenhouse was entitled to shoot him in self-defense just because Grosskreutz was armed. <laughs> what about his right to self-defense? Okay, remember, Grosskreutz is pursuing him down the street. Okay, he's the pursuer. He, at this point, is the attacker. Rittenhouse isn't shooting anybody running down the street until they attack him. This is insanity. This, I've never seen anything like this. This is like, this is crazy. But at the end, I mean, he, he, he kind of insinuates that maybe he's going to get away with it. it. It seems like he's upset about it too, that he's, he actually might get away with it. CNN. CNN always uh, cranks it up a notch, right? And the New York Times. So in CNN, uh, CNN is, um, you know, social media video capture shooting as it unfolded. Uh, he talks about Anthony Vude. He says, Anthony Huber, at least they say Anthony Huber uses the skateboard and hits Rittenhouse. He says in the shoulder. He doesn't want to mention the head because, you know, why would, they, why would they throw anything else in there? He says, then he's, uh, um, oh, Grosskreutz said, I never fired my gun. Well, it's in your hand. It's out. You got it in your hand and you're engaging. He says, I was there to help people, not hurt people. He says, I had my medic bag. Yeah. I love how they also say, Grosskreutz says, uh, everybody, everybody was there exercising their right to protest. And there were some people who were exercising their rights to bear arms, including myself. He's very defensive about the fact that he had a gun. He said he had the right to carry. It's great. You can have the right to carry. It's when you have the right to use it. And let's go back to his first part. Everybody was there exercising their right to protest. My question to him is, oh, yeah, okay. What about the ones lighting shit on fire? Is that a protest? Are we protest? Now we've redefined protest? I don't think so. So, um... This is where it gets great because you, you stick a microphone in some in front of some people at a, at a crime scene or in a news thing and they just go off. And he's just, it was a grievous wound. This is him talking about his own. Had I not had my training and proper equipment to treat a gunshot wound, I might not be here doing this interview. I, I kind of chuckle at that. I mean, I'm, listen, whatever. How many gunshot wounds have you, have you done? Were you, were, you like a, uh, were you like a medic? In the Army Ranger, 75th Battalion, maybe? Maybe you were a SEAL or Delta Force? You do a lot of gunshot wounds? He's making it sound like, you know, he's this important guy running around with his paramedic hat on. He described, the, he described a chaotic scene over the course of that night before the gunfire. Buildings had been damaged and fires had been set by people taking part in a protest. This is CNN. Buildings had been damaged and fires had been set during protest. No, 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 CNN. That's a riot. We keep forgetting that. And, the, and you drive the narrative for everybody. Protest, protest, protest. No, no, you're wrong. And that's, that's uh, the other guy, Grosskreutz. That's his statement. The New York Times, you know, talking about the first hearing, he, they even say, 
while Mr. Rittenhouse is being pursued by the group, this is the New York Times, this is a liberal newspaper, okay, while Mr. Rittenhouse is being pursued by the group, an unknown gunman fires into the air, though it's unclear why. The weapon's muzzle flash appears in the footage filmed at the scene. That line right there is going to help defend Kyle Rittenhouse. And that's coming from the Times. It's interesting because they said in the second shooting, he seems to make a phone call and then flees the scene like I went over before. He falls to the ground, which I talk, talked about, and the other gentleman ha carrying the handgun is hit in the arm and runs away. Hit in the arm, meaning shot in the arm. The New York Times also says, Mr. Rittenhouse's gunfire is mixed in with the sound, listen to this, of at least 16 other gunshots that rang out during that time. So that, that right there, I wanted to bring that part up because it's important because it goes back to my other point. 24 hours, you charged him up, you're done, wrap it up, put a bow on it, you gotta be kidding me. You have 16 other shots that went out. Here's the deal. You don't even have ballistics back yet. Your firearms analysis, gunshot residue, distance determinations, angles, wound tracks, because I guarantee you don't have Grosskreutz's medical records and you don't have autopsy reports of the dead. So it's physically impossible to complete the investigation. And you're not even close to having the clear picture. So you jumped to charge this young man. And I'm not saying he's not going to be found guilty of some things, but you jumped quick. And you did it in the name of trying to quell the rest of the so-called quote, as the sheriff said, vigilantes. My point in doing this one is not to defend this kid. All right. I think it was stupid for him to be up there doing what he was doing. That's just my opinion. Certainly that is part of the things that the investigators are going to vet, why he, why he went there, how he got there, who gave him that gun. Who provided that firearm? Were they lawful in defending their own property? Those are all things that are going to be dis discussed and determined. And I think the easiest part of this thing, from a guy who's done a lot of this, is to look at those videos and say, at this point, was he or wasn't he uh, justified in defending himself? Was, was he protecting himself from an imminent threat or attack in both of those things? So like always, I want to thank you for, for joining us. I wanted to run this one by as a kind of a quick one and let you think about it. I encourage you on this particular case to go look at some of the open source media and the videos. Don't go to those kind of bullshit ones where they give you a three second video or a, three, a one minute video. Watch the unedited videos and make your own decisions. I read to you the self-defense law and the use of force to defend yourself. Apply that. Apply the rule of, the, of law as just a person with common sense and make your own decisions. Like I always say every week, hear it under the yellow tape, we are not here to change your mind. I'm just here to ask you to open your mind. Look at the facts. Don't listen to the media. All right? Everybody take care, be well, and we'll talk soon.